Alright, hello everybody and welcome again to the Good Trash Honorcast. We gather around a table or our desks or our laptops or whatever it is that the quarantine allows for us to gather around and discuss the films you'll never discuss in the film stays course. Uh, we're in the middle of kind of a potpourri season of just kind of picking movies and we're looking at the recently dropped on Disney Plus thanks to the virus uh, onward. Uh, so that's the movie of the day. I'm still Dustin. I'm still Arthur. And I am still Dalton. I was on mute. Uh, that's the thing to keep out for when you're on a video call or a voice call there, listener. Remember that in these these trying times. Yes, indeed. In fact, go ahead and just hit that mute button again. I'll call you in about half an hour, Dalton. It'll be fine. <laughs> Can uh, do. No. Uh, but anyway, so we're going to uh, be talking about this movie, but in order to warn you, if you've never tuned in the show ever in the history of ever... Um, what you want to know is that this is a analysis show, not a review show, and that does mean we're going to spoil the ending. And this is a relatively new film, so uh, worth knowing. Again, it's available on Disney+, Plus. it's available on Amazon. Uh, they dropped it uh, a bit early from theaters because that revenue chain was sort of dis- disrupted uh, by the stay-at-home orders and quarantine and all that. Um, so I know uh, it's pretty available, but... You know, you may or may not want to uh, be spoiled on it, but you can still listen to most of the show because we open up with a synopsis from uh, Arthur Gordon, and then we give thumbs up, thumbs down reviews, which are gentle in the spoiler categories. Uh, then we move on uh, to like a level three mage version of spoilerage when we uh, uh, expand the syllabus, and then we are a level 14 mage. We don't care anymore once we get to uh, uh, business time, analysis time, and that's when all spoiler bets are off. So... Very dear friends and listeners, uh, let's go ahead and hear that synopsis, Arthur, if you don't mind. I don't, not at all. Set in an alternate world where mythical creatures have taken on modern lifestyles and given magic up, Onward is the newest film from Pixar. On his birthday, 16-year-old Ian and his older brother, Barley, are gifted a special item from their deceased father. It turns out to be a wizard's staff and a spell, which will bring their father back for one 24-hour period. But when the spell only works halfway... The Elven Brothers set out on an adventure through the land to find a phoenix gem and finish the spell. There you go. That is uh, the D&D quest that we're going to be on together here as uh, we are uh, talking about this film. Uh, let's go ahead and start with those uh, quick reaction reviews. Dalton, do you like Onward? You know, I, I haven't seen a Pixar release in uh, the last six. Uh, so the last one I checked out was Monster University or Inside Out, whichever of those came second. Uh, so I, I haven't seen Good Dinosaur, uh, what Finding Dory, Cars 3. Uh, there's a couple oh, cool. other ones I'm missing. Yeah. So going in, I, I do feel like I, I have kind of a, a – I'm missing a gap. You know, uh, the, the Pixar films, while not sharing a continuity, are definitely – you know, films are kind of of a piece with each other, which is why I bring up that I'm behind. And, and despite that, I do watch Onward and, and feel it following something of a formula almost, uh, which isn't to say, you know, necessarily has all the exact same beats of any particular Pixar movie. Uh, but, but I do find much with, uh, you know, the other Disney um, aside umbrella Marvel, there is a certain... Uh, sameness uh, to a lot of Pixar films. And again, despite all of them having very different worlds and, uh, you know, different art styles, there is a similar aesthetic sensibility for all of these. And that's good. You know, I, it, it makes sense for an animation house. I mean, Ghibli obviously has a very, uh, you know, defined aesthetic. Uh, it's not something, you, it's not necessarily something you don't want, but there is something that I find um, a little frustrating watching Onward. And I'm, I'm not quite sure what it is. It, maybe it is the, the, the manner that, 
the kind of iterative manner in which Pixar works. And I have, listener, if you're not aware of this, when they're kind of in the story drafting phase, uh, because they're, they are a tech company as much as they are a film studio, they do kind of iterate on their screenplay. So they kind of, you know, within their writer's room, they'll work on something for several years to kind of bring it to fruition. Uh, and that kind of just feels very much on the surface for me watching Onward. There is something, I don't know, kind of by the numbers f- for it. And I've, I've seen some interviews about the production on this film. And, you know, originally they had a more traditional villain um, without being spoilery. There isn't really a source of conflict per se in the film. It is really driven by emotions and character relationships, which I, which I definitely like. But it does kind of rob the film uh, of some urgency, despite the fact we are giving a pretty clear time limit up front. Um, again, all that to say, I, I like the film, I do, but th- there's just something that doesn't, I, I don't ever feel the dramatic tension of the story, which which is interesting, because I, I do seem on paper like a sucker for this kind of thing, but again, to my point about the, the formula of Pixar, is that all of these films do have a certain amount of, like, self-seriousness, like there is a a, uh, a gesturing towards high uh, emotional content within all of these these Pixar films, typically. Uh, and, and I feel that big time in, in this film. Uh, it is, you know, a classic Dead Parents Disney movie, um, to, to not put too fine a point on it. And, and it does just kind of seem to exist in a way that is so beholden to that trope. Uh, and, and I'm curious to, to hear what you guys think about that <clears throat> as this film, you know, exists within a larger history of Disney cinema. Uh, I, I am curious, but, uh, there is something fun about this being Pixar's weekend at Bernie's, right? Like the, the, the gag of, of the, the father character, uh, having a half, uh, appeared body, like the, the missing torso and the, the, the ways in which they have him navigate the world it's all there's a lot of funny bits uh the characters are compelling uh i do really like uh barley lightfoot as a character this very jack black influenced seeming character uh it's, it's fun to see chris pratt back in that uh lovable doofus mode that he kind of uh, perfected on parks and rec uh you know tom holland is as serviceable as this kind of a coming of age protagonist uh, and Julia Louis-Dreyfus as their mom and Octavia Spencer as, as uh, this, this former adventurer that teams up with uh, Laurel, their mother, to, to, to help them out. Like, it's a good cast full of interesting characters, uh, but but none of them really kind of shine through for me, really, other than Barley. And, and even him is a character that seems a little confused. And maybe that's kind of where I come down on this at the end of it is I, I watch Onward and I go, yep, that was a Pixar movie. And yet, for whatever reason, it doesn't really strike the same chords that I think some of the best Pixar films do. Uh, something like uh, Inside Out or Up or, you know, Ratatouille. Uh, some of those really my, my favorite Pixar films. It doesn't quite resonate like those. So, uh, yeah, I like it well enough, but I am I'm more or less mixed on it, despite the fact that the image of an airplane flying in the background of a fantasy setting does does kick a lot of ass. Perfect joke. Very cool, very cool. Well, thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. What do you think, Arthur? Do you like the film Onward? Yeah, I, I think it's a lot of fun. I, I, I do. I um, kind of, to Dalton's point, you know, it does feel very probably B or lower B or C tier Pixar. I don't feel like they're really breaking anything new. Um, it's a fun world, uh, and it's a fun concept on paper. Um, this is the first, you know, original. Pixar films since Coco. Um, and so it, 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 
it's got a good, you know, I, I do like, I like Barley a lot. I like Chris Pratt's performance. And, and like you said, going back to Dumb Pratt from Parks and Rec is a lot of fun and a strong choice. And, and of the animated cast, he feels the most animated. Like he feels like he's giving it a, a different, a vibe, um, than I say, you know, Tom Holland is. And Tom Holland's just kind of doing his Peter Parker thing. Uh, I think Octavia Spencer's also a standout here. I, I really like her, her, character that's the manticore I the manticore rules fun. yeah yeah i think it's just a lot of fun um and it's beautifully animated i mean the world is so gorgeously realized and there's some fun stuff the motorcycle sprites um you know things <laughs> like that the gelatinous cube showing up is a lot of fun um he enlarges a uh, cheese puff uh, which is a great great gag um but yeah to your point i mean it doesn't feel you know they're not really breaking any new ground here and kind of focusing on this like brotherly story is kind of interesting uh, but it feels like a retread of Frozen, I think, uh, a few years too late in some ways. Uh, and so I'm, I, I enjoy it. I don't mind watching it. I had fun with it. And I've, you know, I've seen it a couple. I saw it in theaters. It was, I think, the last movie I saw, or I saw this in the way back on the same day, and those were the last I saw in theaters, you know. Um, and so I think the second time watching it, I was a little checked out at times because I kind of knew the beats. Um, so, and the other thing about it for me, um, you know, structurally and, and the way it plays, it kind of feels like a Disney movie more than a Pixar film, if, if that makes sense. I think it's no. something like Zootopia. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean when you say that. I, I hadn't quite found the way to put it into words, but that, that's sort of what I was striving at with that 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 sameness almost, that, that really kind of predictability is not the right word, but it's the first one that comes to mind. Yeah, it feels conventional maybe is, is the word I'm looking for, but I know exactly what you mean, Arthur. Yeah, I think a lot of like Bonkers or Darkwing Duck or Gummy Bears and those sorts of things or Zootopia, um, which kind of felt like a throwback to like an early 90s Disney style. And this really feels like it fits more into that than it does, say, Coco or, um, you know, Brave or anything of that nature. So I'm, I'm kind of on the fence there. Uh, so uh, it's it's fine. Um, it's an easy way to kill a couple of hours. I wasn't offended. But like I said, I wouldn't put it in the top you know, echelon of Pixar, you know, they've done finer work. Um, and so I'm kind of curious to see how soul plays a little later this year. And if they drop this one early, cause they think souls are going to be the bigger, bigger player. So, mm. all right. Well, very good. Very. Or next year, if it comes out, right. Yeah. No kidding. We'll see uh, what the whole theatrical release schedule ends up being. And that ought to be an interesting thing to see. Um, what I'm going to say is, um, maybe I like this movie more because I don't like movies like it as much. I've never been just really obsessed with or really taken by your Toy Stories, your Finding Nemo's, your Monsters Incorporated's. Um, you know, even, I mean, I loved, you know, Lion King when I was 10 or whatever and it came out. But I, it's, they've never really sat with me in, 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 in any kind of meaningful sense. Uh, it's like, okay, it was a fun kids adventure, Rob, the books, right? Uh, you could even throw, you know, uh, DreamWorks as Shrek here in this as well. I thought Shrek was fine, but it never was a movie that sort of got under my skin. And uh, this movie doesn't do that either. But it tells jokes well. It hits the emotional um, peaks and valleys in the way it's supposed to. The voice acting uh, using, again, the model of using celebrity casting uh, that we've moved to since the world of Shrek. By doing those kinds of things, it all works. Um, it's funny. I laughed when I was supposed to laugh. I cried when I was supposed to cry. I was, you know, um, delighted by the idea of a Dungeons and Dragons, uh, adventure turned into a Pixar film. That seems like a lot of fun to me. 
So, uh, yeah, I, I like it quite a bit for what it is. And as far as what it is, it's as good as anything I've seen. I mean, you know, I mean, yes, you might make an argument that there's more going on in, say, Cars or there's uh, something, you know, really to think about with the arc of Andy and Toy Story. And I'm sure there probably is. Um, but it's just never been a thing that's just been, you know, in my wheelhouse. And so for me, I'm just like, this is as good as anything I've seen. Um, and this is, and, and by that being, it's totally unoffensive. It's a, it's a good time. Um, not mad that I watched it and would watch it again, uh, given an opportunity. And so, uh, I, I, I don't know how middling that praise is because I'm saying I like it as much as Finding Nemo, which I think is saying something probably, but I'm also saying I don't really care for Finding Nemo that much. Uh, so I don't know there, there, I, I don't like happiness. I don't like joy. That's what it comes down to. I'm all for sadness. Uh, that's not true, but yeah, I, I think it's a good movie. Uh, I don't know. <clears throat> I think it is true. I, I think there is an element of truth there. Yeah, it is mostly a joke, but I think there's an element of truth there. And I think it speaks to, you know what I was getting? I Look, I'm not saying I, I need Pixar to try to make me cry, but I do kind of expect that moment from yep. them. And and the the gesture towards grand emotion in this film is, eh, it's okay. Uh, yeah. It's really heavy-handed. Yeah, they take a shot. See, we're all heavy-handed, I yeah. guess. And so I'm just like, oh, okay, you did the thing you do. And it worked enough. <laughs> It was interesting to hear you invoke Shrek uh, because I I hadn't even thought about that, but maybe that is why. I mean, Shrek one, especially Shrek two, like use so many of these these juxtaposition of fantasy worlds and conventional mundane human life. Like that's kind of the bread and butter of that that franchise's joke telling. Um, and and I didn't even realize it till you mentioned it, Dustin. But there is is some some element of that within Onward, right? Mm-hmm. Like. The, the Manticores, TGI Fridays type situation, you know, the ye old tavern type jokes, uh, ye, ye old kids menu and stuff. I was thinking it was like a, what medieval times or what is that place where you can watch jousting? Yeah, medieval times, sure. Yeah. That, that is the place. Yeah, it's, it's a little bit of medieval times by way of Chuck E. Cheese, but that, again, still does feel very much like a Shrek joke, as does the airliner flying in the back of the very, like, uh, Lord of the Rings riffing shot like so again i didn't make those connections till you said it so they weren't that big but as soon as you brought up shrek i did start to think there are some jokes that feel recycled from that franchise a little yeah. bit and again it, it, you know but it's it does them as well as shrek does sure. sure 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 i'm not trying to take it yeah. they are playing in a similar space you're gonna have some joke overlap it's not an accusation of plagiarism anyway uh, or anything like that it, it is just to say i think that might be uh, at the core of this feeling of sameness that I get from it, maybe. Yeah. Well, we'll talk more about Shrek here in a minute, I'm certain, because we're moving on into the next part of our show in which we expand the syllabus. And uh, this is where we do a little thought exercise together, the three of us, and pretend like we're teaching this film in a film studies course, and we develop a course or a module or a week around uh, this particular film, and then we talk about what other auxiliary texts or films we might use in order to have that discussion. So that's the thought experiment. I'm going to go to you first, Arthur. How are you going to expand the syllabus? Hey, so kind of like last week, I just want to do a little genre stuff uh, with this, I think, and kind of talk fantasy. Um, you know, it's a genre that's doesn't get a lot of entries anymore. Uh, we get one here every you know few years. Uh, but it's kind of gotten the way of the swashbuckler, or, you know, I don't think it really ever achieved the same kind of cinematic scale as other uh, genres um 
And so we've got some standout entries, but then also you have some pretty pedestrian stuff that comes through. But I want to start with uh, this entry here from filmreference.com. They have fantasy films, uh, theory and ideology, and kind of outlining the different types of fantasy. So we know high fantasy, low fantasy. Um, they break this out into uh, marvelous and uncanny. Um, and there's a third one that I can never find. Uh, but uh, fantastic, I think, is just in general. Um, and so it kind of ranges from like, the fantasy elements that are at work in even a horror film versus surrealism versus, you know, high fantasy, your Lord of the Rings and things of that nature. So I think it's a really good uh, little read that kind of gets into some analysis and how you can apply that to fantasy uh, with some different examples. And then from there, I just want to just uh, I would ask a question to interrupt to, to use your taxonomy. Where do we place onward? I would say onward is in that uh, by looking at this. Um, it kind of falls, I think, into uh, some of that high fantasy um, because this is uh, what it deems to be marvelous fantasy is that high fantasy or, as Tolkien called it, sub-creation, uh, which is applied to a self-contained story world. And I really think that's what we have with Onward is this kind of self-contained world that has its own rules and, and history and legend to it. Um, and we kind of get that with the prologue at the beginning as they're outlining the where the... Uh, obsolescence of magic came from uh, which i think is a fun little bit and so I, I think that's where we'd put it and you know i don't know if we'd get all the way into high fantasy probably a little low fantasy if we want to argue semantics about you know all of those things um but i don't know uh, i'm just curious i mean just you know like that that's a slightly different taxonomy than i'm familiar with with fantasy so i just wanted to see what your read was and where you'd place it yeah i mean kind of going off their parameters i think that majestic is where it fits the best or um, mm -hmm. just because the other two that they outline are more like surrealism or dream world type things. And I, I definitely don't think they feel there uh, at all. Um, and so uh, I would go with um, just a few options, you know, uh, I, I would like to go with Jason and the Argonauts, um, some Ray Harryhausen in there. Um, but, it's just a fun little adventure film kind of set in this medieval fantasy world with all of the uh, fun Greek mythology things uh, in the background, uh, which would just be a fun little little direction to take it. And then I would go with uh, The Page Master, uh, which kind of gets into this dream world element uh, um, with Macaulay Culkin. And he's, you know, falling in love with his library and the importance of reading, uh, which I think is just, you know, it's just fun. And as a kid, it was just a blast to watch that and. Uh, the worlds that they go into and the kind of meta narrative at play is, is just really kind of cute. Um, I would also go with Star Wars to kind of add in that sci-fi element and how that mixes with fantasy and how they interact and play together. Uh, but finally, I'd go with Wizard of Oz. Um, and the article points to this as kind of a example that mixes the three types of fantasy together uh, with the surrealism, that kind of dream world, and then the actual high fantasy of Oz uh, that's at play. Um but that'd be my direction. I think I would just kind of get into, you know, what is fantasy? How does fantasy flow through genre? You know, we kind of always think of fantasy as magicians and wizards, but then there are also elements of fantasy in horror or in sci-fi and things of that nature. Um, so I, that's the direction I would take it. Very cool. Very fun. I would dig that class. So, hey, Dalton. You got a class for us, man? Well, I certainly do, although I am still lost in thought uh, on uh, The Page Master and how happy I am Arthur brought that movie up. I haven't thought about that in years. Ugh, a classic. We'll have to do it sometime for the show. 
Oh, I would. We absolutely have to. Yeah, I had a, I had that yes. on VHS, and I, oh, yeah. I put that that one through its paces. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, well, I, I am drawn to. Uh, if you listen to this show before, you know that I like movies about dead parents, uh, or at the very least, I'm interested in this trope that we uh, we do seem to spend so much time playing with in fiction. Um, so I think talking about a Disney property at which uh, the relationship to a, a departed early parent is a good place to start for a class that is centered on these these looking for dad movies. Uh, and it's not always dad, uh, but it is often. Uh, uh, let's just say it's uh, the, the missing parent film. So we're, we're going to kind of look at a, a, a taxonomy of sorts to, to kind of borrow what we were talking about with Arthur's uh, fantasy class. We're, we are going to kind of look at some different films that invoke this trope and invoke this idea of building your narrative around uh, parental legacy uh, and how that can define a character. Uh, so much like Arthur wanting to use uh, Star Wars uh, for uh, discussion of space fantasy, I, I think using Empire Strikes Back um, and really probably maybe more Return of the Jedi, um, just because now that the uh, secret of Luke's parentage is out in the open, we actually get to talk about it a little bit more in Return of the Jedi and let it define that character. Um, so I, I think maybe we, we look there and we look to uh, The Last Jedi, uh, the last Star Wars film, as far as I'm aware of. Uh, and I think both of those are, are films that we can look at, again, one being a Disney property, one not being, uh, but a pair of Star Wars films that kind of allow us to look at some very prototypical uh, uses of this missing parent, especially the dark father uh, or the father that looms large. And again, maybe for the new Star Wars trilogy, we might actually want to look towards uh, The Force Awakens for some good stuff with uh, Adam Driver and Han Solo. But at any rate, that, that is a franchise that is uh, rife for exploration with this missing father, either by death or abandonment. Uh, and I think there's some interesting stuff there. I think next we need to look at the classic the starter of the trope potentially nah it's definitely not the starter but it is kind of the er example and it's Bambi uh, we absolutely got to look at that um, because I think it's incredibly valuable here and and one in which the the death of the parent comes late you know it doesn't define the entirety of the film it is a definitive split in a you know an idyllic pre-tragedy half of the film and a more world-weary post-tragedy half of the film. So I think, number one, being one of the a very early example of this trope, it both in film in general and Disney films specifically, uh, I think using Bambi is going to be useful uh, for a lot of reasons. Uh, I, I think next we're probably going to have to read some weird-ass myths uh, because parentage is such a big part of that. Uh, and again, we, we you know we're obviously going to be looking at, at Onward, um, so I think it's it's useful to explore uh, some of the the, the great uh, characters from myth because these whether it's you know Athena sprouting uh, from Zeus's head or Zeus's numerous uh, you know uh, illegitimate demigod offspring uh, I think mythology is a useful place for us to go to look to these stories of of missing or corrupt parents and and how they loom large over the lives of uh, protagonists within fiction. Uh, and then we can look at Creed. I think uh, that, uh, or Rocky Six, as you know, you might call it, uh, just an, an, a film that does so much with this trope. And again, using this existing franchise as a springboard uh, to tell a new story uh, that is in this, this vein of somebody struggling to find their identity uh, through the, uh, through the ghost of a parent that kind of haunts them. Again, it's, it's good stuff and it's really interesting. Uh, I think uh, maybe a, a final place to leave off, you know, if we're using Onward, maybe as a ladder point in the class, uh, we can use another recent Disney film. 
uh, and look to something like Moana where this trope is subverted a little bit. Uh, and it's Moana's grandmother that is kind of the, the, the sage figure that is encouraging the adventure and then the, the figure that exits the film early to kind of galvanize a, a change and growth in a character. Uh, so I think, you know, using a couple of Disney films, using some myths to look at the roots, because so many of, uh, of those classic Disney films use myth and folklore as their jumping off point. Uh, I think that's going to be a useful place. And again, using our modern myths, our, our Rockies and our, our Star Wars as our big cultural phenomenons and how we continue to, use big blockbusters like that to uh, revisit old ideas like these these big looming uh, parental figures. I think there's a lot of fun to be had in this class and a lot of e- examination of why why our culture is so interested in this this death of the parent. It does seem rooted in some the, some interesting psychological concepts we can discuss or at least interesting uh, sociological concepts just in terms of uh, how we we tell stories and you know the kinds of stories we tell you heard it here folks there's a lot of fun to be had that's right dalton stewart thinks dead parents fun uh i don't think that's cool then you you <laughs> did hear it here first uh i am an, an authority on the the subject <laughs> oh shucks uh but yeah no actually it sounds fascinating that's that sounds like a really really fun class uh it's just the choice of words of fun to be had and dead parents in a single sentence was something i could not leave unremarked upon uh well, look, you know me. My idea of a good time is cracking open uh, somebody's filmography and really pouring over it to determine what it says about them as human beings. So, yeah, that's how I, that's how I get my fun. Yeah, for sure, for sure. So I'm going to do a class that's similar to Arthur's. In fact, they could probably scale together in a larger course on uh, just fantasy and multimedia uh, expressions of that. And I would do a module, I think, within that course on the postmodern slash metafictional uh, fantasy films, uh, and Onward being one one of those things, in which this movie is a movie that knows it is doing Dungeons and & Dragons and is, you know, winking the whole time at that kind of, you know, maybe a card-playing version of Pathfinder uh, kind of seems to be what uh, Barley's playing there. Uh, but, you know, there, there's something really sort of meta-postmodern going on there. And, of course, then the next film um, that I would add to that uh, filmography for this little section of the of the course would be to look at Shrek and how Shrek knows it's a fantasy story, how Shrek knows it's not a Disney movie, and how, the, the again, the ways in which it invokes that sort of postmodern knowing uh, I think is really kind of interesting. Uh, with a movie like Shrek. Uh, also, last year, or the year before last release, uh, directed by David Ayer, starring Will Smith. That's right, Bright. What if the cop was an orc? Uh, a friend of mine just said on Twitter, that's Dalton. Uh, so now you But guys, start. but guys, what, but what if? What if the cop was an orc? Right, uh, which is hilarious. And so, yeah, this is, again, sort of, a, I don't know, Training Day meets Orcs, uh, or Lord of the Rings. Uh, it's, it's, it's a fascinating disaster of a film. But again, it's also very knowledgeable of what it's doing and how it's doing it. And, uh, the way in which, uh, fourth wall breakage is taking place, uh, less so with a movie like Bright, which sort of, uh, just asks you to embrace this as a possible, almost, uh, within the realms of a high fantasy type of world. Uh, versus something, again, like Onward, which is winking at things that exist in our own world that we're sort of familiar with and how we engage them. 
and uh, what's going on there. Uh, the last film I want to mention is uh, a, a film directed by the uh, visual artist Dave McKeon called Mirror Mask. Uh, it was uh, planned to be released straight to video uh, by the Jim Henson Company in 06 and uh, ended up having a limited theatrical release. The, uh, the story and the screenplay were written by Neil Gaiman. And uh, it's one of these uh, movies. Uh, a young woman has an argument with her mother and sort of enters into a fantasy world, uh, fantasizing about teenage rebellion and how she actually likes her mother, but she doesn't really like her mother and, and all that. And, and and so basically walks through a lot of fantasy story type tropes. Uh, there's a lot of uh, Wizard of Oz. There's a whole lot of Alice in Wonderland. Uh, just a number of those sort of Joseph Campbell-esque hero's quest things that are going on. But all, again, filtered through this sort of knowing, I'm doing a fantasy story. I have found myself in this kind of world. And obviously, there are – I don't understand what any of the rules are, but I understand how rules work in this kind of world and how to discover the appropriate kinds of rules so that I can move forward. And again, that sort of knowing, knowledgeable uh, postmodernism uh, that's tied into it. And so it's kind of like a – you know, David Foster Wallace meets fantasy is kind of what I'm trying to do here. And, uh, hmm. you know, again, that, 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 that sort of novel, Douglas Coupland's, uh, Generation X, uh, is another sort of, uh, another novel writer that I wouldn't invoke for the class, but this understanding, this, uh, sort of, uh, encyclopedic knowledge of popular culture and the way in which it continues to be invoked in a way that provides a particular set of pleasures for the audience, but also a particular way in which the stories are constructed, uh, the ways in which those tropes are obeyed and sometimes set aside. I think that's interesting. So uh, that would be the class as I would teach it. Yeah, that's exciting. There's a I, I like what you're doing with there. I, I think there's a lot to be had uh, with that conversation around. Yeah, how, how we continue to use these tropes and subvert yeah. them. And what what is you know uh, postmodernism as a uh, procedure, right? And as just an artistic practice mm. uh, to invoke that particular uh, philosophical style. So, um, all right, guys. Well, I think it's now time to get down to business. It's business. It's business time. I don't know what you're trying to say. You're trying to say. Ah, uh, yes. Our favorite time. A time when we can come together and, and huff our farts and pontificate on the, the deeper meanings behind uh, Disney Pixar's uh, lunchbox property. Yeah. Um, dads, they always be missing you. Uh, that seems to... Uh, parents just do not understand, yeah, am know, I right? They, they, they don't listen to me, man. You really just don't get me. And you're not even my real dad. Wait, sorry. Um, I had a moment there. Uh, yeah, that's, that's this movie. So, um, Dalton, I know you're all teed up, so why don't you just go ahead and kick us off on our missing father, uh, missing fathers in general. Take it wherever it goes, and then we'll, uh, wrap into some other things after that. Yeah, sure. I think this is a fun place to start. And I think we can look at Ian as kind of an, an archetypical, if not the like er example of this sort of uh, or half orphaned child. Uh, and again, it doesn't, it hasn't have to be a father. Again, I think Brave does some really interesting stuff with Merida's, it's Merida's mother's, the, the kind of missing absentee figure in that film, right? Correct. Yeah. In a long time. Yep. Okay. Sometimes they're moms, sometimes they're dads. Yeah. But exactly. There is always an absentee parent. Uh, and we talked a lot about this when we talked about the, the kid who would be king. Uh, that, that really wonderful film, uh, from 2019 that, uh, Dustin liked just okay. 
but it's uh, all right. I, we got again. If you want to go back and listen to that episode, though, I think we we got a lot of mileage talking about the the missing father trope there. But I, I think what we get here more than we even get there with with the character of Ian uh, Tom, the lead Tom Holland's character, it, we we do get a sense of the way in which this impacts somebody's psychology, and I think the fact that. Um, Wilden. Uh, I think the fact that Wilden is a forever absent figure is really interesting. It does allow them to play in a different space uh, in terms of exploring how this has impacted Ian. And, and it does allow us to have a character who is kind of unmoored in a very interesting way and, and is looking to this this relationship that he missed out on for something, some sort of identity. I, I think there is something useful there, but it it. I don't know. It's it's frustrating to watch Julie Louise Dreyfus' character, who's really interesting, and I think Laurel's a lot of fun as a character. Uh, it, it is interesting that our, our writers and the film itself don't really seem interesting in exploring much about the boys' relationship with, with Laurel. And again, I get it. She's alive. Uh, and also is an opposite gendered parent. Like there, there, there's reason for them to not to explore that. But all the things I just mentioned that would make the writers want to put more input on Wilden, his death, and his, you know, his being uh, this this male role model that they're missing. I don't know, man. I think there's a lot of untapped potential with Laurel, and and I guess maybe that is my frustration with this trope. Often, I think when it's done really well, you can juxtapose off of a, and I think the kid who would be king does this very well. Uh, you can juxtapose the absentee parent with the present parent, and and kind of explore what that means for character relationships. And I, I just don't ever know that onward gets there. You know, we have this this tension between uh, Colt, uh, the, you know, their mom's new cop boyfriend, which you know that's fun. That's a fun thing to play with, especially with with Barley being kind of a, a public nuisance and uh, a history protester. Like there, there's some cool ground to work with there, but it's an only a 90 minute film. You know, it is it's very short, and we don't have a whole lot of time to spend on such frivolous concerns as what's the relationship with mom like uh i'm being sarcastic if you can't tell it's hard it's hard to make that uh come across when i can't look you both in the eye you bring up you know the, the thing with laura i don't know if you saw I, I think it was joanna robinson uh watched oh do you like joanna robinson i think it was her that was tweeting about this recently they whoever the critic was they had just watched onward after it hit disney plus uh mm. they were talking though that the the laurel subplot that b plot with her doesn't feel earned or make a lot of sense um because we don't really get to flesh out laurel as an emotional character in this movie and so i think to your point you know what i think works so well in the the kid who would be king in that family dynamic is that um there is so much tension between the mother and the son Whereas here we have nothing. I mean, she's a very doting, loving mother. She's very encouraging of both of her kids. You know, she's not too mad at Barley when he's doing whatever he's doing, public protests. Um, She's very encouraging of both of them. And so for there not to be that tension and then for her to go on to this quest to try to quote unquote save them, uh, it does feel a little hollow in in, in that way. Yeah. she is kind of like this archetypical uh, postmodern June Cleaver, right? Yeah. The like the perfect single mother. 
uh, in a way that's a little frustrating. I mean, the, the closest she gets is she kind of rolls her eyes and jokes about Barley's very long gap year, which is a, a funny joke. Yeah. Uh, and kind of tells you everything you need to know about Barley, but I, I'm right. That's a, such a succinct way to put it, Arthur. Yeah, there's, it's just an underserved, underdeveloped relationship. And you mentioned how good Octavia Spencer is as the Manticore. Like, there's that B plot between those two characters has a lot of room for interesting. I mean, that's a movie itself. Yeah, I mean, that's Thelma exactly. And that is a movie itself. Boom, there it is. Yeah, that that is children's fantasy. Uh, Thelma and Louise, you're absolutely right. I mean, and it's just underserved. I mean, the Manticore herself gets more to do, I think, emotionally and as a character. Absolutely. Well, and I think the Absolutely. real missed opportunity is Colt, uh, Officer Colt, that I mean, truly. <laughs> yeah, well, and they got Mel Rodriguez. Absolutely. They got Mel Rodriguez and everything to do, who I, I love from uh, Last Man on Earth with uh, with Will Forte and uh, Kristen Shaw. Yeah, he's great. Uh, he's also Nurse Jackie, I think. I love him as, as an actor. And he's a, he plays Colt with an interesting mix of empathy and right. like duty. And, and, yeah. and here's the thing though. I mean, overwhelmingly though, we see him from the perspective of the two children, right? Uh, that this is, this is how the kids look at the new boyfriend mom has brought home. And, uh, they think he's not a bad guy, but he's a total dork, right? And, I mean, that's really what it comes down to. Uh, he does seem to genuinely care. There are so, some beats there, but I, I think the movie, could have been wiser to play more with how he is trying to also, you know, the way in which Barley ends up fulfilling that role of father uh, for his brother, the way in which uh, Colt is also trying to do some of that same kind of support and the way in which that that's difficult and it's a challenge for him and he doesn't quite know how to navigate his space. It's, I mean, there, there, there are hints at it, there are winks at it, but I think there could have been a real emotional, you know, uh, some, some serious work done there. Uh, with that character, with that actor especially. Yeah, I think you're right, Dustin. And, uh, you know, it, it would be easy to kind of pivot and defend the film and say, well, it is a children's film. Of course, most of these characters are seen through the child character's eyes. But, you know, Pixar has made its bones and its reputation on these very emotionally complex children's films. Yeah, but uh, So I, I don't think that's necessarily a good defense. Well, and to that, I mean... Oh. The, the children in this movie are 16 and 18, yeah. 20, presumably. Exactly. So, I mean, They're young adults. Yeah. I don't know how well that holds water either. It's it's a weird. Exactly. You know, you know fantasy man of the house might have been really funny. You know, if, if Barley and Colt had to go on this adventure and Colt's like, what are you talking about? Was that a die, Dalton? No, it was a pin. I was taking notes and I dropped my pin. I was trying to be a good podcaster and turned into a bad podcaster. I promise I put all my tabletop stuff away. Uh-huh. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, I do like the tabletop jokes here. Uh, yeah, Fantasy Man of the House, Arthur. That's a that's a TV show. You just you just sold uh, you just sold NBC's new uh, fall uh, Thursday night show. Coming to Peacock this summer. <laughs> You're right. That's a Peacock show. That doesn't land on NBC <laughs> primetime. Uh, maybe this is an interesting. We've played we've played here, kind of talking about these family dynamics and, and missed opportunities with Colt and Laurel. You brought up Barley's kind of. The culmination of the character arc that is Ian realizing uh, Barley is great. Uh, and with Barley being very much a Jack Black type, honestly, Jack Black should get a residual check for this film. Oh, absolutely. Chris Pratt is doing a Jack Black impersonation. He absolutely is, yeah. Yeah, he's he's playing a combination of Jack Black's character from High Fidelity and Jack Black's character from the video game Brutal Legend. Uh, not Neither here nor there. I do... And I do like and am interested by Barley as a surrogate father and Ian coming to realize that. With that said, do we do we like the choice to never have really an on-screen moment with Wilden? 
and I, maybe this is a, a place to take us out of the the family dynamic stuff. I appreciate what we get. I think I I, I like that. Ian kind of takes a step back and lets adult Barley have that moment. I think there's something very sweet about that, and I do feel it's earned. I I, I like it. I, I think it's a, a nice move um, for Ian to kind of quit obsessing over this ideal of, of this perfect moment uh, and then letting stepping aside to let Barley have that again. Um, so I, I, I kind of went for it. It certainly isn't the only possible choice. But it's a good one, and it works. I mean, they could have done other things, and other things might have worked in different kinds of ways. But I'm not offended by the choice anyway. And, I, and like I said, it works. Uh, and so there is this, the, the, there is a, a certain um, way in which you, you have a game with Ian of seeing his brother as his father replacement, which I think is great. And then not needing to sort of hold so hard onto this lost memory that he's never going to actually have any hold on anyway. So, I mean, as far as him making the arc for that, I think that works. But that being said, he could have done that through a conversation with his dad as well, right? And so, uh, yeah, yeah. I, it, it, it's, it's a brave choice maybe, but I don't know if it's necessary. They just, okay, they did that, and they did, they did it in a way that it wasn't bad. I think I'm more in line with Arthur. I, I do not only think the choice is earned, I really do like it. Uh, I, I get your apprehensions, Dustin, in terms of maybe more interesting choices could have been made. Uh, but I think I'm with Arthur. I think it might be one of the biggest and boldest and most interesting choices the film does make. Uh, the thing it brings me back to is something you've already touched on, Dustin, which is that, that missed opportunity with Colt. And it does make you kind of think about with Barley sharing so much screen time in this film, did he need more character growth or is he kind of that chaotic neutral uh, trickster character? You know, your Lokis, your Jack Sparrows. Do we not need character growth from Barley? Do we not need to know him at a deeper emotional level? Because I am kind of interested. I'm interested in the conversation Barley had uh, with, with uh, Wilden, right? I'm interested in, in uh, how Barley feels about this absenteeism uh, in some capacity. So maybe that's what it is. Maybe it's not so much that uh, we watch that scene from afar and Ian has to give up that moment. I think I love that choice. I think as much as I love the kind of, you know, Werner Herzog aesthetic truth, you can't actually describe how perfect and sweet this moment would have been. So why even attempt it? I don't know. Maybe attempt it. I'm kind of curious what that conversation looked like. Yeah, I, me too. But I, I'm okay with not having it as well. I, I like I said, there's a sure, boldness sure. there, and I think it works. You know, so yeah. Again, I, I, as I said, I'm with Arthur. I, I think it's an earned choice, and I think it is uh, in a, a film that I've kind of uh, undermined or not undermined, um, taken a task for not making bold choices. I think that is. I agree. Uh, one bold choice that's made. Uh, do we have anything we, we kind of want to step off from? Uh, I know you kind of uh, threw to me with this, uh, this Dustin. Um, what, what do you uh, do? You have anything interesting that uh, you're really chomping at the bit to get into? One thing I was thinking about: this is probably the most mainstream. I mean, Stranger Things has definitely got a bunch of characters who are playing Dungeons and Dragons as it opens up, and it does kind of continue to be sort of a plot contrivance. But that's also uh, part of trying to achieve its '80s aesthetic. This movie really is the the one of those moments in which uh, this thing that we call nerd culture really kind of goes in the rise. They're going to base an entire major tentpole, uh, you know, not a Netflix series. You know, this is this is a uh, Disney series or Disney film 
on a uh, you know a set of rules from an RPG. There's actually uh, at the end of the movie, at the end of the credits. I don't know if you watched all the credits or not, uh, but they have uh, they have to give copyright credit for the gelatinous cube and for the beholder, uh, which are both uh, TSR uh, or. or uh, Knights of the West, uh, or whatever is it, Wizards of the West Coast, uh, yeah. which is now the company that owns uh, Dungeons and Dragons, and uh, have to sort of acknowledge that they're used. They, they use these things; they don't belong to them. They're used for permission, and it is a weird moment to be in, in which this becomes uh, basically the way in which the plot is driven and the way in which the conventions are chosen uh, for a fantasy series. I mean, we are. We are in this peak moment of that which is nerd, uh, and I don't I don't know if there's anything more to say about it than that other than just simply acknowledging this is a movie that never ever would have been greenlit even ten years ago. Well, I don't know about that, but I, I think it's interesting you because I think we've been working to this moment. I am glad you brought this up because I think the D and D episode has like slowly but surely become a staple of television since Freaks and Geeks and what like. When did that come out? 2002? I don't remember. It's not important. I didn't watch it as it aired. But I would say for at least the last 20 years, I mean, I think 99, late 90s, early aughts is when you have that uh, Dungeons and Dragons movie they attempt that, you know, is a huge box office bomb. Uh, But you're absolutely right, Dustin. It, It is interesting to see yet another shining example of kind of the, the nerd culturification of, of popular culture. Uh, kind of hitting critical mass. This is uh, a D and D with so you know you know it, does, it makes a lot of sense, right? Writers are nerds by and large, so it does make sense that the Dungeons and Dragons and, and tabletop role playing have been kind of worming their way into larger cultural uh, stories for a while now. I, I think I, I would say more than twenty years, but again, even back into what is it monsters and mazes the tom hanks yeah. film yes uh, that, that's still very much a kind of a, a reactionary satanic panic look at tabletop gaming um as i understand it i, have, I haven't caught up with that film but I, it is it's very interesting you're absolutely right because again i referenced a brutal legend the uh the video game that stars jack black which is kind of a mix of heavy metal album artwork aesthetics and you know tabletop fantasy aesthetics i need this uh, in my so life it, I don't even, it's a very good game. I need this now. Uh, I'm yeah. sure you can find it. Yeah, go go. It's called Brutal Legend. It's great. Uh, I remember playing quite a bit of it when it was released. It's very funny. It's from uh, Double Fine. Uh, some of the creative minds that uh, uh, did stuff like um, The Day of the Tentacle and Monkey Island. Some of those early Lucas Arts games. We don't need to get it. This is not what we're talking about. Uh, but I, I, I am. I'm right there with you, Dustin. I, I had I didn't thought to talk about it, but I am fascinated with this continued. This bringing in of more and more esoteric stuff from nerd culture as this now, you know, at least 10 years starting, well, at least 12 years starting with Iron Man, but potentially the last 20 years starting with, you know, X-Men and Spider-Man, this kind of gigantic widespread domination of American popular culture by things that, yeah, in the 70s, 80s, and 90s were very dorky Mm -hmm. uh, and had little respect culturally. It's it's interesting. It, It is kind of fascinating. Yeah, I said this is really saying anything or contributing to that particular conversation, but it is yet another example of just the nerds are winning, you know, and and the way in which where this is what I'm curious about. Where does a nerd find their sort of niche, you know, angsty place that nobody else plays? You know, where they are the only ones about. I mean, it's it's like going to be Reddit. I mean, I don't know where that is, but game shop. That is the unfortunate thing. (laughs) 
<laughs> oh god, yeah. Reddit's an unfortunate place. Game shops are better. Yeah, let's continue to congregate at game shops, people. You'll make friends. Uh, I, I think that's a good point, though, Dustin. I, I also don't know that I, I have anything to add to it, but maybe it is. You know, it's making me think of the way in which, uh, especially something like a Westworld, which is you know feels very influenced by the same kind of nerd culture stuff that we're talking about. Uh, you know, a, a remake of a. a Westworld that's a gigantic huge budget TV show would have seemed very unlikely not that long ago. Um, and, and it is kind of in that same, again, this being a Jonathan Nolan TV show, it is in that Christopher Nolan writer's uh, coaching tree, uh, you know, uh, right alongside J.J. Abrams to some extent, right? This this puzzle box idea, and I only bring these ideas up, or the mystery box, because it these are kind of the same hooky things you would use writing a a tabletop fantasy role playing game, right? You you just kind of come up with a hook, a MacGuffin sometimes to to draw your players in, uh, and there is a certain amount of like very meta level writing going on, and the more nerd culture we get, the more time we have a dominance of the same things that writers like, you know, writers liking stories about writing or about story creation. Um, again, with uh, kind of keeping Westworld in just because it's, you know, it's airing right now and thinking about it a lot, but also, uh, you know, Onward is playing in the same space. The ideas about how the stories we create are informed by our, you know, our world's histories, right. And how there's lessons to be learned from uh, continued, uh, uh, engagement with these old stories uh, there does very much feel like as nerds get more power writers are let more and more off the leash so we do get more stories that are are more meta are dealing with again table topping uh D episodes kind of becoming a hallmark in television it, it is this uh the money people, the the people who get to have to sign off on decisions being made seem to be getting more comfortable with the creatives doing kind of weird brain, not necessarily brain bendy, because that gives a little bit too much credit to ideas that aren't that clever sometimes, but just uh, the manipulation of what you can expect from a story, uh, I think is maybe, if there is anything interesting to this observation, Dustin, about D&D kind of becoming more mainstream, it might be that it goes hand in hand with these these puzzle box narratives, right? And these these narratives that are uh, the idea of storytelling is so heavily in, ingrained within just the minutia of the fiction itself. Yeah, I, I agree. I tell you what I'd like to see. This is just a random thought, then we'll move on into our verdict section of the show. But wouldn't it be fun for like a really skilled fantasy novelist to pull out a D20 and actually play D&D while he writes the novel? And decides, well, am I going to be successful getting out of the tavern or not? Am I, you know, do I fight the dragon or do I not? And I roll for, this roll rules. for all the choices and write whatever, when again, let the dice choose where the story goes. You know, writers are all the time talking about how characters are unruly and they do what they want and like they have, you know, they don't even know how things are going to end. Like to actually just give yourself over that saying, I have no idea. I've got a character and I've got a starting situation and I'm just going to roll dice and, uh, and I'm going to write out the results. Wouldn't that be fun? Kind of a, uh, kind I of love a that. choose your own adventure approach to writing. Yeah. Surely. Surely somebody oh, has already done this, right? Listener, true. if yes. you know, please, please, 
this, yeah, this has to have been done. Uh, I think you're right, Dustin. I think it might be time to let this train roll into our, our verdict territory. Do we have any closing observations that we feel like we need to touch on? Anything about the Pixar model or the, the Pixar system? Uh, anything about fantasy tropes or, uh, you know, any, any large notes that have not gone checked? I think I'm going to throw back real quick, uh, Dalton, to your review um, when you were talking about the Pixar style. Um, I don't know if you'd read it, but there was an article on Screen Crush from Josh Spiegel, uh, the five Pixar cliches we're getting sick of. Um, mm, I have not read Which kind this. of overlaps greatly with yours. Uh, he highlights uh, the mismatched duos and buddy comedies. If you don't put that pin up... <laughs> you, you look, I will drive I deserve, over to your uh, house. Cough on you. I, I deserve, <laughs> listeners, uh, I deserve your shame and mockery. Uh, tell Arthur he was right. Um, so he highlights uh, the mismatch duo and buddy comedies, uh, desperately trying to make you cry, uh, human qualities mm. and non-human worlds, and um, white male leads as some of the uh, Pixar cliches uh, that he's sick of. Not wrong. Um, I just thought I, was, wow. I wanted to throw that out there for uh, the listeners. They go check that out over on Screen Crush. Um, just because I, I, I never really thought about it until I read that that article came out. I think alongside Onward's release, and you know, I've seen all these movies, and I just never you know, consciously acknowledged some of those tropes, uh, especially you know the buddy cop comedy thing, uh, which is you know from the beginning from from Toy Story uh, is, is their yeah. bread and butter. And so I thought it was you know kind of humorous to see that all laid out. Uh, so go give that a read if you have a have an opportunity. But that's that's the only other thing I wanted to bring up. I may very well do that, Arthur. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned it because that I, I hadn't seen that, and it does very much kind of line up with a lot of uh, a lot of my my gut reactions watching Onward. So I'm, I'm glad that exists. I'm glad I'm not the only one that's feeling it. Alrighty, yeah. well, let's get to the point and let's uh, go ahead and render ourselves a verdict, shall we? Uh, what do you say? Uh, shell for trash. The film Onward. Go, Arthur. Go. I'm going to go ahead and say trash. I, I, I get a lot of enjoyment out of it, but it's definitely not the higher tier Pixar, uh, like I mentioned earlier. Um, and so I, I don't think you need to go out of your way to see this one. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and trash it. Very cool. Very cool. What do you say, Dalton? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it is uh, I just like uh, being mean to Disney a little bit too much these days. Uh, maybe it is uh, all of uh, our kind of apprehensions about it that we've discussed throughout the episode but yeah i'm, I'm right there with arthur i don't i eh, who cares it's fine uh the fact that this is kind of going to be dumped uh on a streaming service and that's the way we'll remember onward is oh yeah that was the pixar movie that came out right as uh coronavirus peaked in the u.s and we had to shut the country down and it died on disney plus like that's kind of a fitting fate for this movie I, and, uh, yeah, I, I'm not losing any sleep over that. Um, and I hate to say that. You know, these these Pixar films are a huge undertaking, and I think that's maybe something uh, we, we didn't really touch on and probably could have spent a great deal of time on is th these are pretty large endeavors that they spend a, a great number of years on, and, and when they don't land, it's a bummer. Uh, you know, Pixar movies, uh, you, look, I sound like an old man uh, going to school uphill both ways, but a Pixar release did usually seem like a special moment in the year. It, it did seem like you knew you could count on a certain amount of quality. And it is a real McDonald'sification uh, of – well, maybe it's just a further Disneyfication of their model. Uh, both Pixar and Marvel and, and other and Star Wars and other properties that come under that Disney umbrella just 
start to feel too much like a product. So yeah, I've, I'm glad to see this go to streaming service. I don't, I don't need it in my life, and I don't think the listener does either. What, what about you, Dustin? Where are you at with it? So I, I'm going to say the same thing, but I want to say it much more gently. Uh, so yes, I'm saying trash. You don't need to own it, but you don't need to own any Pixar movies. They'll be on the TV. They'll be at somebody else's house. And if you want to watch a good family movie, pick one and watch it. If Onward happens to be the one, great. But whatever. It's, it's, it's fine. It does everything it does fine. It's entertaining enough. And so it, it's not so much that it's bad or it bothers me or I find it to be, you know, significantly lower quality than the other films. It's just like, it's one of them. And as one of them, fine. But why would you want one when you, you know, don't need to have that shelf space taken up, which could, you know, have a Kurosawa film instead or something, you know, good. So that's where I am. There were days before Disney Plus, Dustin. That's true. There were days before that. But uh, will there be days after? Who can be sure? We don't uh, even know if we're to make it I, to I'm next glad, year. I'm telling you. Uh, I, I'm glad you mentioned that you were going to go softer than me, Dustin, because I think I maybe came across as a, a touch more jaded than I meant to. You know, I still love the movie sh- I love watching the pictures. I'm just, yeah, it, this is one of those, I think was a very succinct and accurate way to put it. Yeah. That's All right. It. Well, there you go, dear listener. Those are our thoughts on Pixar Disney's Onward. Um, are we going to watch another movie, Arthur? I think we are. And cool. if you haven't got whiplash yet from our double feature of Near Dark and Onward, <laughs> well, next week, we're having a real lighthearted affair when we talk about Denis Villeneuve's Prisoners. Ah, just what I needed when I was complaining about a film that was too short and didn't get into family dynamics (laughs) enough. This is – give me another full hour and a a much larger web of intersecting relationships. Bring me the sadness. Put it in my veins. That's what I want. Oh, we will. So – yeah, this is as soon as Dustin mentioned at the top of the show that he wants the sad movies. Uh, that was the writing on the wall you needed, listener. He's about to get his wish. Yay. Uh, so if you like, if you liked Onward uh, more than we did, or you think Prisoners is a bad choice for us to talk about it on the show, uh, you can let us know over at good underscore trash on Twitter. That's a good way to stay up to up to to date on what we're doing on the podcast, uh, what we're reading online, uh, the, uh, generally amusing things that are happening on film Twitter. Um, so yeah, you can, you can let us know there. If you have some long form feedback on onward, you think it's uh, a masterpiece worth examining in a, uh, a family, uh, the sociology of the family class, you can email us good trash genre cast at gmail.com. Uh, if you want to hear Arthur, uh, take Dustin and I through a tabletop role playing game, you can go, uh, using the monster of the week system. You can go to patreon.com forward slash GTM, help us keep the lights on. And yeah, you get to listen to us play role playing games and tell our own, uh, dice based story. Um, is, is there any other way that they can interact with us? Did I miss anything? Oh, rate, review, subscribe. That's how you, you know how to do that. I'm, that's it. That's the usual suspects. I'm practicing social media distancing. It's probably for the best. <laughs> uh, I'll tell you what. I, I, I put my, my toes back into Twitter earlier uh, this week. Yep. Yeah, good call. <laughs> so, all right. There you go, dear listener. Those are our thoughts on Onward. We're looking at Prisoners next. You keep watching. We'll keep talking. And we'll see you all next time. I'm not afraid.